Well, this morning we officially end our trek through the Gospel of Matthew. Can I get an amen? amen. No, that's too, you, no, I'm not supposed to get an amen. It's a little too enthusiastic there. But Matthew is the story of Jesus, of Nazareth, who he is, what he did, and mostly what he had to say. It's about what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in his kingdom, his place in that kingdom and our place in that kingdom. If you come to Matthew expecting a policy manual about 500 things to do and 500 things not to do, you have come and not understood the gospel of Matthew. You're going to miss the message he wants to bring, and you're going to miss the message of Christianity. To understand Matthew, we had to understand the first century culture, and then we had to take, go from that culture and bring it to our modern life. They lived, we don't live in first century Palestine. That, that trek is challenging, but it's doable. And I hope that by now you have a basic understanding of the flow of the book of Matthew. I hope you know the book well enough so that when somebody just proof texts Matthew, you can say, oh, that's in chapter whatever, and this is kind of what's going on. Yeah, this is, right? You know this stuff. I don't even, so there you go. But I want you to see context matters. And so you can't just pull verses out of Matthew to prove whatever you want to prove, because Matthew put it all together in a flow. And so this morning, we're going to go quickly through Matthew, and then we're going to ask for some passages that have been the most transformational in this gospel. So, the setting for Matthew. For this book to make sense, you have to know some history, which you know by now, right? God made the world, all right? And we blew it. We sinned. And God had a decision to make after man's sin. Solve sin or trash everything. Start all over. He could eliminate all the agents of evil. He could do every, get rid of everything that caused sin. Or he could solve the problem of evil. Which is harder to do? Solve the problem of evil. And we know he decides to solve the problem of evil because we're here. God communicates then to humanity in, throughout the Old Testament in covenants, in promises. As the stories of the Old Testament unfold, God deals with mankind through these great promises. And there are three that are important to the book of Matthew. The promise to Abraham. And the promise to Abraham was what? I don't care what you do, you are going to bless the world. It's an unconditional covenant. Just, this is what I'm going to do. The covenant to Moses was like, well, if you do this, I will do that. Blessing or cursing. And they got all these rules. And they, this is how this kingdom, he says, is going to be set up. But it's a conditional covenant. And then David comes along and God says to David, no matter what you do, and David did some bad stuff, I'm going to set up a line of kings out of which will come the king. It was an unconditional covenant. David is the founding king in a line of kings. And the big question in the Old Testament is, okay, so when does all of this happen? And as the New Testament opens, none of the political machinery is in place to make a kingdom like that happen. And so people are freaking out about things. Rome is in charge of everything. 
They live their lives under a great capital rotunda dome, an iron dome of Rome. And some have concluded that the only way to get God to redeem everything is to fight hard to get rid of the iron dome, and then we can make things line up politically for this king. Some others conclude that God has forsaken them. It's over, folks. Might as well just side with the occupiers, figure out how to make the most of a bad situation, because this isn't great. And some people, they still get it. They say, no, God is faithful. And, and he will fulfill his promises. Those people are in the minority for sure. But the people are confused. What's really going on? What do we look for in a promised king? And so when Jesus shows up, 400 years of institutions have sprung up since the last prophet spoke. Those traditions, they involve a lot of money. They involve a lot of rules. They involve a lot of prestige and power. And these, they can't even get along with each other to figure out what's really supposed to happen. And so Jesus comes and he interrupts all of that. And we can understand the reaction to the people to that because, you know, we hate stuff that, that is our, that's our stuff. You as an outsider can't come in and hate our stuff, right? We, we hate our own stuff, but you're not allowed to because it's our stuff. And so here comes Jesus. You may not like what he has to say, but this is our stuff. Don't, don't you know. And if you're trying to understand what Jesus did to upset the people, at some point you have to admit that they're just like us. They're petty. They didn't want to lose their power. And give them a break. The last time they messed things up, what happened to them? They ended up in Babylon. And so let's not do that again. So let's protect the law. Let's make all of these rules and regulations so that we don't get in that place again. And when he shows up, the question is, could he be the Messiah? Matthew 1.1 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what Matthew's saying. This is it. It's the argument that Matthew makes. As he opens, you have to assume all of that history. He begins with a genealogy. And this genealogy goes back. It goes, starts with Abraham, and it moves forward through David, through Joseph to Jesus. Why? To prove he's legitimate. He's of the royal line. His virgin birth makes him unique. And before the time of ministry begins, another prophet finally shows up after 400 years. John the Baptist, the forerunner, predicted. And when Jesus is baptized, he gets a sign from heaven. This is my son. This is who he is. And that sign, together with the temptation, proves he's morally qualified to be this Messiah. And then Matthew reveals the king's ability to teach with authority. He can replace the Old Testament law with a new kingdom plan. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. The first of how many discourses in Matthew? Come on, please, please. Five. There's one gold star student. Just kidding. You all knew that. Right? There are five discourses in Matthew, the first of which is the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew builds his whole gospel around these five. 
And in this first one, he presents what this kingdom is all about. What are the values? What's most important in the kingdom? We have in there an oath of loyalty to the king. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but if you really look at it, it's like, oh, I'm going to join that team. And what follows the Sermon on the Mount are these demonstrations of power. The king can rule. He heals over distance. He doesn't have to be there. He walks on water. He casts out demons. He forgives sin. And he raises the dead. In Matthew 10, he sends these followers out that he's got, these 12 disciples, to announce the kingdom. But they're only supposed to go to Israel. Just stay local. And we discover the second of the five discourses, the missional discourse. And he tells them what they're supposed to do and how to do it. But it becomes clear as they go out that Israel really isn't interested in a king like him. They don't really want a righteous king. And controversies begin to arise. How do you deal with the Sabbath here, Jesus? Now, where does your power... You, you did this, but where did you get the power for that? And as the opposition begins to grow, the king announces a new development in the program. That's discourse number three, the kingdom parable discourse. And he speaks in parables. Why? To hide truth from some and to reveal it to those who want to follow. And you discover that the message is going to go everywhere. And they're going to cast the seed wide, but... Not everybody's going to respond the same way. And it's going to get messy, this kingdom is, but don't get upset. God's in control. It's okay. And as the opposition continues to mount, what does the king do? The king withdraws. He begins to go off on his own. He begins to work with, mostly with his disciples. They take a road trip up north. Up there, a Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman, knows he is Jesus the Messiah. The disciples have revealed that truth at Caesarea Philippi. And when, he, when they figure it out, what does Jesus say? Well, it's upon that truth that I'm going to build my church. And then he begins to predict his own death. And once he does that, then you've got another wrinkle in the story. Because now you've got to figure out, well, what's it going to be like after I'm gone? The disciples, what do we do? Discourse number four, the, the, the church life discourse, Matthew 18. And Jesus says it's going to require you to do hard things. You actually have to be honest with each other. You're going to have to be real with each other. You're going to have to forgive each other. If this thing's going to work, you've got to do a lot of forgiveness and a lot of humility. At the triumphal entry, he comes into town as an outsider. But he does things that make you think he's the owner of all this stuff. That this is his place. In Matthew, he's never been to Jerusalem before, but he shows up and he clears out the temple. In Matthew 23, he forces the disciples, not the disciples, he forces the religious leadership to do something about him. He calls them out for all of their sin, for all of their waywardness. And then he goes up the hill on the Mount of Olives. And in Matthew 24 and 25, we have the final discourse, the Olivet Discourse. Very different speech from all the others. This is apocalyptic language. This is like, well, how is this all going to end, Jesus? And he says, what? Well, you're not going to miss it, that's for sure. But this is what you do in the meantime. And he lays that out. The, most, the majority of the sermon's about how to, how to live life while we wait. But there's a lot of big language, end timesy language. The last portion of the gospel is all about his passion. He pushes Judas to betray him. 
because the religious leaders didn't want him to die before Passover. They don't want to get their hands dirty before then. But he kind of pushes Judas to do that. So they have to act before he escapes again. And in his death, prophecies are fulfilled. In his resurrection, prophecies are fulfilled. And the nation of Israel sees the sign of Jonah. It is the king of the Jews who is crucified and who raises again from the dead. In his final commission to his disciples, the command which to this day guides us all, until I come back, make disciples. Just do what I did. That's all you have to do. See, that's the story of Matthew. It's not a biography. It is an argument that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. So I wrestled, what do I do? How do we approach this sermon? And on Wednesday, I decided this sermon was a really bad idea. Friday morning, this sermon is a really, really bad idea. But it was too late to do anything about it. So I decided, what are some life-transforming texts that we have encountered in Matthew that kind of tell the story? And I wish I'd thought of it earlier because I would have had you all, I did mention it a little bit in the update. Did you think of some life-transforming texts? Because I come up with four. There could be 400, but there's only time for four. But I want to look at some texts that I think kind of go in the flow of Matthew that really are meant to transform our lives. One last time. Text number one. Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm not selecting that text so that we can go through the genealogy again. I chose it because it's supposed to be startling. It's supposed to get our attention. What's the point Matthew is making? The point Matthew is making is very simple. You are not at the center of history. I am not at the center of history. Our generation is not at the center of history. And the United States of America most definitely is not at the center of history. Throughout history, billions of people have come and billions have gone. Empires have risen. Empires have fallen. Nations and countries have come and gone. Rulers and kings and queens and presidents and dictators, they've all come and gone. But at the center of history stands one person, Jesus Christ. And all history either points to him or flows out from him. Because he's at the center. That's the claim that Matthew 1.1 is making. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because if Matthew is right, there are huge implications for everybody sitting here this morning. Every one of us. If he is the king, he gets to tell me what to do. He's the king. And the reason your life is found on the pages of human history is so that you might know and worship him as the king. That's what Matthew's all about. As the story unfolds, his own people misread him completely. They put him in a box labeled insignificant rabbi from Nazareth. And the more he proved, I don't belong in that box, the more they hated him. And the more they just counted him as a nobody. He is still misunderstood today. 
And the greatest mistake you can make is to ignore him as if he doesn't matter or to think, oh, I'll just postpone any kind of decision about him. You cannot wait till he returns to ask him, were you here 2,000 years ago? Was it really you? He came as the promised Messiah, the son of David, the savior of the world. Don't make the same mistake the Jewish leadership made back then. Don't put Jesus in the man-made box. Don't demand that he meet your expectations. He is the king. And God has revealed his deliverer, the one who will bring salvation, Jesus. God has announced that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, Christ. That's who he is. Our king changes everything. Passage number two. Matthew 1, verse 2. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, dear. Second passage is Matthew 9. And the point it makes, I think, is that Jesus can transform anyone. In Matthew 9, we learn of the decision of Matthew, that this Matthew, to follow Jesus. In the context, the story follows the healing of the paralytic. After Jesus forgives his sin, Jesus heals him. He says, get up and walk. And then he encounters our Matthew. And it is here that Matthew becomes, like a paralytic, a sinner in need of forgiveness. Except he can walk. Don't forget what kind of sinner Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector. We called him who? Han Solo of the New Testament. Kind of a rogue, kind of a guy. But he was politically unacceptable. He's in cahoots with the Romans. He's a traitor to his own people. He obviously cares more about money than fulfilling the Jewish law. He's a man who is, with his eyes open, decided to join the Romans to make money, to be comfortable. He was religiously unacceptable. Tax collectors are unclean, always. He was socially unacceptable. The Orthodox were not allowed to vacation with tax collectors. They couldn't travel together. They couldn't do business with them, couldn't give them anything. They couldn't go to their homes for dinner. Socially unacceptable. That's like three strikes and you're really out. But here's the amazing thing. Though he was politically, religiously, and socially unacceptable to the self-righteous Jews, he was not unacceptable to Jesus. And therefore, he was not unacceptable to God. Jesus comes to him, verse 9 of Matthew 9. And Jesus went on from there. He just healed the paralytic. And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up. And followed him. Jesus said the same thing to Matthew that he had said to his first disciples. It's the same call. Follow me. And when Jesus called him, Matthew did exactly what the paralytic man had just done. When Jesus forgave his sin and he healed him, he did what? He got up and he followed Jesus. You see, the sin of Matthew was just as paralyzing as the man who was laying on that cot 
Was his faith genuine? Well, he got up and followed. And he arranged for his friends to come and meet this Jesus. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. The miracle story, the friends, in, in the miracle story that had just happened, the, the friends brought the sick man. Here, Matthew brings his sick friends to Jesus too. And while he's doing this, you know, they, they're watching him. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Ah, the opposition's growing. It's getting louder. And the Pharisees question whether he is a legitimate teacher of the law or not. Because if you were really a teacher of the law, you wouldn't eat with this riffraff. If he's righteous, why is he eating with the unrighteous? Is he really holy? Is he really separate? Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Today, if you're sick, what do you do? You go to a doctor. You go to the hospital. But back then, oh, the glory days, doctors came to you. Come on, docs. They made house calls. Jesus says he's a doctor of the soul. So if I'm going to help those people who are sick in the soul, i got to go where they are. The Pharisees could actually be doing, the, the Pharisees should actually be doing what Jesus was doing, reaching out to those who were sick of the soul. And Jesus alludes to Hosea 6.6 when he says, you know, they're just doing the outward forms of religion. They're not really dealing with people because what you need is a true religion, a religion from the heart. As we follow Christ and we're caught up in his story, we're part of the kingdom and we need to have his heart. We need true religion. Matthew shows us from his own life that this is to powerfully transform us from within. And once we've been transformed, our mission in life changes. Jesus said it at the beginning, Matthew 4, 19, come follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. He ends with Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and as you go, make disciples. That's the kind of transformation Matthew endured. It changed him. And I think it was a transformation that is really more dramatic than the big Damascus Road experience of the Apostle Paul. It's a change that takes Matthew from only caring about himself and his family and making money to the place where he is willing to lay down his life for the Savior. Church history says Matthew is martyred by being staked to the ground and speared for preaching the gospel where? In Ethiopia. As you go, make disciples. I don't really know if that's true. That's what tradition says. But I do know this. He meets the king, and it changes the trajectory of his life. He gave up much to follow Jesus. After the resurrection, what did most of the other disciples do? Well, they all, they all went up to Galilee. And what did most of them do? They went back to fish. What do you think Matthew did? Go back and collect taxes? <laughs> no. He gave all that up. Have you ever had such an encounter with Jesus that it radically changes your life? When I entered ministry, I said, 
There is no turning back. There is no plan B. Not because of some call from God, but because I decided that for me, I would give everything for the Savior. This isn't an experiment. This is my life. And Jesus is able to transform anyone, even you, and I don't care what you've done. Matthew says Jesus can transform anyone. Matthew is exhibit A. Passage number three, Matthew 13. Don't waste your life on trinkets. Don't waste your life on trinkets. We see through Matthew's eyes, what we really see is the diamond of the glory of God. And then we're persuaded that true wisdom will give up anything to possess that diamond. Among the parables that the kingdom in Matthew 13, that third great discourse, there are two which describe the implications that Jesus is the king. Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man, when a man found it, he hid it again, and then, his, then in, in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. You see, in the day of Jesus, you, you didn't have safe deposit boxes. You didn't have banks. Really wealthy people, I think, had some banks, but there was not very common. No financial institutions. So if you got something really valuable, what's the safest thing to do? You dig a hole in your property somewhere and you bury it and make sure nobody knows where that is. But the problem with that is what? Sometimes you forget. Oh, I forgot what I did or I even forgot what maybe generations passed. So somebody comes by and they see this and they dig it up and they realize what it is. And then they're like, well, I'm going to buy that plot of land because what's, what's buried there is worth more than the land. And it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So they find this treasure that's been hidden in the field. And he gets his money together and he buys the land. Once you buy the land, the treasure is yours. Verse 45, Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Apparently, pearls are more valuable in the first century than diamonds are today. And so when he finds this particular one, the merchant knows its value. And what's Jesus trying to say? Simply that, that we pursue that in that we pursue what that what we pursue in the kingdom is of very great value. Or to put it another way, don't spend your life chasing trinkets. Because the only thing this world has to offer is trinkets. Jesus assumes four things. Everyone's going to search for some kind of treasure. We're all doing it. We've been designed to, to be value-oriented and purpose-motivated people. We're always pursuing some kind of treasure. Number two, your treasure is going to control your heart. Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there's your heart. There's a war within us that's, that's being fought at our core being. Which treasure are we going to seek? What, what makes you think is, is within you. What makes you desire what you desire, what makes you do what you do, whether you're conscious of it or not, your words and your action, they're always an attempt to get out of life or your marriage or your job or your kids what's valuable to you. Third, what controls your heart's going to control your behavior. 
Therefore, fourth, you have a choice. Do you pursue the hidden treasure of the kingdom or the visible treasure of yourself? There's only really two options, Jesus says. Either I, I attach my identity, my meaning, my purpose, my inner sense of well-being to the earthbound kingdom of self and the pleasures I find therein. Or I attach my identity, my meaning, my purpose, and my inner sense of well-being to the heavenly treasures of the kingdom of God. Which becomes for us a wonderful diagnostic tool. What stressed you out this week? Could it be that you were asking your spouse or your kids or your job to do for you what only the Messiah can do for you? Could it be that you're trying to seek something horizontally which we should only pursue vertically? Do you expect your spouse or your job or your stuff or your ministry to give you what you've already been given in Christ? Do you expect... To, to find your fulfillment in the kingdom of this world, ruled by self, or in the kingdom of Christ. And we all face a daily battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of me. Is the hidden treasure, is that valuable pearl worth everything to me? Because the biggest protection against the kingdom of self is not some self-help strategy. My best protection, it's a heart that is so blown away by the right here, right now, glories of the grace of Christ that I'm not going to be easily seduced by these temporary glories of what this world has to offer. We need to be blown away by the kingdom of God because that's going to change the way we live. Transformation. Passage number four, Matthew 27, which I think tells us we have a great king. We have a great king. That Jesus is king means he has authority. But how does Matthew say Jesus used that authority? How did he demonstrate Matthew says he did it with gentleness, with humility, with his desire to serve other people. And we get several glimpses of the heart of Christ in the book of Matthew. Listen to Jesus in these encounters that he has with, with sinners, with suffering people. I'm just going to read them quickly. Matthew 9, 2. Some people brought to him a crippled man laying on a mat, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw how much faith he had, he said to the crippled man, My friend, don't worry. Your sins are forgiven. Matthew 9, 22, Jesus turned and saw the woman and said, don't worry, you are now well because of your faith. Chapter 14, verse 27, at once Jesus said to them, don't worry, I am Jesus. Don't be afraid. And then when he was with the crowds, Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for these people. They've been with me three days. They don't have anything to eat. Let's feed them. Yeah, go for it, Jesus. But there's one New Testament text 
which shows us explicitly what the heart of Jesus is like. Matthew 11, verse 29. Take the yoke I give you, put it on your shoulders, and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest. It is profoundly comforting to know that we have a king whose heart is stirred with affection for us sinners. Jesus likes us. We always say he loves us. We know that. But he actually likes us. And in Matthew, we always see his willingness to forgive, his willingness to welcome sinners. And there is no greater emphasis or example of that than on the cross. My final transformational text is rather simple. Matthew 27, verse 35. When they had crucified him. Our king on a cross. How crazy is that? And that's the point. Because that's where the story's been headed all along. But it doesn't make any sense. Matthew is asking us to believe that the one we think we should follow ended up suffering the most offensive death in all of history. And if that makes you scratch your head, I think you're in good company. I mean, what kind of faith do we have? First Corinthians, Paul says, the message about the cross doesn't make any sense to lost people. But for those of us who are being saved, it is God's power at work. See, the message the world hates is the truth that we celebrate. The message that the world hates is the only message they're going to hear which will save them. And the message that the world hates is the only message we should be in the business of proclaiming. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He bore the penalty for my sin. And he sets up a pattern then, an example. This is how you're really supposed to live, folks. So why is it so difficult for us to make uncomfortable choices as we follow him? Why? The cross of Christ is such a glorious mystery. It's going to take us all eternity to, to fathom its depths. And one of the dangers of being in church is we, it just starts to make sense. You come long enough, you sing the hymns, you take communion every month. We forget how radical the message of the gospel really is. And I hope that our journey through Matthew has reignited the mystery of our salvation. We have a great king. Four life-transforming texts. There could be 400. But Matthew ends how? Jesus with his disciples up in the Galilee together. There's no ascension. There's no departure. Just Jesus and the eleven with the promise of what? That Jesus will be with them to the end of the age. Jesus did change the world. And at the end, he takes the baton and he hands it to us. Through his life and his teaching, the world can be changed again. And it starts with each of us living out the things he taught us being transformed 
So we're going to let him do it? Shall we change the world? As we explore new ministry opportunities, we know one thing for sure. Jesus is with us to the end of the age. We have the personal, empowering presence of the king. He is with us always. And I think the best message you can take away from Matthew is this. We can do this. The message of Matthew might be complicated. It might take a lot of work. But at the very end of the book, he says, you can do this. You can do this. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, what, a, what an amazing gospel Matthew is. But as we wrap it all up, we are challenged to take the baton that he handed to the disciples, who handed it to the generations which followed, and it is now our turn to pick it up. That we might change the world because we have been transformed by the king. So let us run our race with endurance. Let us be faithful. And may we enjoy the journey as we follow the great shepherd of our souls. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.